name is Charlie Englehart. I've been at Redeemer for four years, um, and I have the pleasure of reading our scripture today. Our scripture today is from Titus 2, 11 through 15. It's on page 998 in your pew Bible if you'd like to join me. Um, can you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, this is Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. Well, um, about a week or two ago, I was given... Probably one of the best gifts I've been given in a, in a long, long time. Um, a person gave me their Traeger. <laughs> You're so impressed already. Uh, how many of you know what a Traeger is? Who's familiar with the Traeger? All right, okay, that, the first service was like three people. And so I was like, all right, we're off to a great start. But yeah, so if you don't know what a Traeger is, a Traeger is a meat smoker. I love to smoke meat. Uh, it is delectable. Delicious. It's amazing. I love to uh, smoke pulled pork. I love to smoke brisket. I love to smoke um, pork belly burnt ends. If you don't know what pork belly is, it's big chunks of bacon that you then put in a smoker, let it sit there for a few hours, and then you put sauce on it and then let it caramelize so that it's both crunchy on the outside but then melts in your mouth like butter on the inside. All right, I got to get back in because I'm getting distracted right now just thinking of it. And some of you are already now really hungry and you're like, Paul, like lunch is coming and you got to now wrap up real fast because of this. But no, I love to smoke meat. But here's the thing about smoking meat. I've had a wood chipper smoker, which basically what that means is, is you use just wood that you have to feed into it every few hours to keep the smoke going. And then also the temperature when you do that can regulate up and down. And, and it's hard because you need to cook meat low and slow over a sustained period of time. And what makes it really hard is like if you're doing brisket, it can take anywhere from 12 to up to 20 hours, depending on how big it is, which means you've got to start it the night before. And so when I've done this, I've literally like a, a month, a year ago, so not a month ago, a year ago when we had a member party, um, I had to start in the night and basically woke up every 90 minutes to refill wood to have to check the temperature. If the meat fluctuated in temperature, it would start beeping and wake me up. It was a very restless night, and I have to do this all the time, even though I love it. Well, here's the great thing about a Traeger. A Traeger has a wood chip dispenser, a wood pellet dispenser on the side, so anytime the wood and the smoke's getting low, it just automatically feeds it in. Glory, hallelujah. Like, it just feeds it in there automatically so that I don't have to do anything. I can sleep well. Um, if I was here, I promise, like, my phone is not up here. I don't have it going right now. But, like, it, because it's hooked to Wi-Fi, this Traeger is, if I'm here and I see that it's meat is cooking too fast, I can turn the temperature down from here so I don't have to be with it. It's amazing. Okay, it is amazing. Whether you think it is or not, this is amazing. Well, like, all joking aside, that actually segues good because, like, when I said it's amazing, it is amazing. But here's the thing about a Traeger, and I would say really about any device that you have, or really anything. The longer you have something, have you ever noticed, the less amazing it is over time. Like, remember when DVD came out instead of VHS? And it's amazing. 
until the like it scratched like the DVD and then it began like pausing and skipping. Remember like Discman? Anyone remember a Discman? It was so much better than a Walkman, which was like a little cassette tape until you ran too hard and then it began skipping kind of a thing. So anything we have, it eventually annoys us or we just take it for granted and it's no longer as amazing as it once was. And the other thing is, and you could kind of see this to some of the reaction in the room, if you've never experienced the thing of yourself, you're not necessarily oppressed or amazed because a lot of it is you have to know what something is and what it does, and then you really have to experience it yourself to see how amazing it is. Here's why this matters today. In our text, which this is what many commentators would say is like the core of the entire letter uh, of Titus. Like this is the core. And actually this is where so much of the gospel was compressed into just a few verses. We see here the central idea of grace. And, and grace is so central to our faith and to Christianity. In fact, I would argue that grace is what distinguishes us from other religions in the world. It's what is going to mark us off even from the culture we're in and make us attractive to the culture we're in, and that's grace. But here's the thing about grace. If you're not a believer in Jesus, when you hear the word grace, it's probably not that amazing because you don't know what it is and you don't know what it does. And even for many of us in the room, probably most of us in the room that are believers in Jesus, here's the thing is probably over time, you've gotten so used to grace that maybe it's lost a little bit. This is not a word, but I'll use it right now, of its amazingness. In fact, I read this book a few years ago um, called What's So Amazing About Grace, really playing off of that, that hymn that is so popular both in religious circles and in secular circles of amazing grace. And it was just asking, well, what's so amazing about it? And that's really the question I want us to ask this morning. Well, what is so amazing about grace? But I don't want this to be like an academic exercise because if you walk out just knowing it in your head, that's one thing. But what's even better, it's like, it's like the same way, like it's not enough just to have a Traeger. I want, like, you need to eat a bite of the meat to see how amazing it is. I want you to actually not just know why grace is amazing, but I want you to be able to experience it this morning and then also learn how you can experience it every day of your life so that you don't just know why grace is amazing, but you experience God's amazing grace every single day. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk about what grace does and what it is. In the same way that I told you about what a Traeger does and what it is, I want to talk to you about what grace does from this text and what it is. So let's, let's get into our text together. Um, Titus 2, 11 through 15, we actually see right away one of the big things that grace does. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the first big thing that grace does is grace saves. Now, when you read this, it might be a little bit tempting to think, okay, does this mean that all people are saved? Because it says that it brings salvation for all people. Definitely not. This is the same Paul who throughout the book of Acts um, went around telling people that they needed to repent of their sins or they were going to face judgment for their sins, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. This is the same Paul throughout his letters talked about the coming wrath of God on people for their sins if they don't repent. So Paul here is not saying that all people by God's grace are saved. He is saying that all people, if they will receive the grace of God, will receive it and then be saved. Tracking with me so far? Okay, so he's, this is not about universalism. This is not about uh, Paul saying everyone can be saved. He's simply saying, I mean, everyone will be saved. He's saying everybody can be saved if they'll receive this grace. Well, what makes this grace for salvation so amazing? I think in order to know this, you really need to know what we're saved from. Um, if you want to know how amazing something is that saves you, you really need to know, okay, well, what was it saving me from? So, for example, if you came to me and said, man, I want to save you from wearing that awful outfit. Those um, things don't match. Or, Paul, you're wearing socks with Crocs. Not a good look. I know it's the thing that a lot of kids and students do nowadays, but I'm sorry 
it's a crime against humanity to wear socks with Crocs. I'm just going to go on the record and say that if you're wearing it right now, I won't say that I'm not judging you. I might be a little bit, but there's grace for you and grace for me right now because of that. Anyways, I'm digressing. That's awesome if you want to save me from a bad, like, fashion faux pas. But it's, it's great, but it actually really is not that amazing. Okay, but, like, if you come to me and say, hey, Paul, you left your Traeger too close to your house and your house is catching on fire while you're preaching. Um, hey, do you want me to put it out for you? Yes, you're saving me from my house burning down. That's a little bit more amazing than a social faux pas. If you come to me and say, hey, Paul, I want to save you from eating Taco Bell before you go on that five-hour charter bus ride. You're actually not saving me, you're saving the other people, but that's great, but it's really not that amazing. You kind of get in with the drift so far, so the amazingness of this is based on what are you saved from. Well, what are we saved from? Scripturally, what we see is salvation is saving us from the penalty of our sin. So it's not just that we're saved from our sin. A lot of times we talk about that, of, oh, I'm saved from my sin. Yes, you are, but you're saved specifically when we're talking about salvation from the penalty of your sin. We see this in Romans 6. Paul says, for the wages of sin. Wage is something you earn. It's something you deserve. The wages of sin is what? Death. So because we've all sinned, and if, you're not, if you don't know what a sin is, a sin is anything you think, say, do, and feel that displeases God. And we've been doing that, by the way, naturally from birth. When I meet someone who says, oh, I don't think people are sinners from birth, I'm like, oh, you've never had kids. Um, <laughs> it's just like, I remember when one of my kids, who shall remain nameless, uh, was two years old, got mad at me and bit me on the neck. Well, like if we don't, if it, if it isn't in us from birth, but we learn that, where did that person learn that from? I don't bite people when I'm mad, generally speaking, always speaking. I'm kidding, like always speaking. I, I didn't bite them. I didn't bite my wife. Like where did she learn? I just gave away. It's one to two kids now. Where did one of my children learn that from? They learned because naturally from birth, we do things that don't please God. And the Bible says, according to Romans, that because that we're going to die, but it gets worse because the book of Hebrews says that it is appointed once for all people to die and then, I think we'll have it on the screen for you, comes judgment. That when we die, we are then going to stand before God and then we are going to be judged for all the ways that we've sinned against him by our nature from birth. And we're going to have to bear the penalty of that. Maybe if you're like me, you're a visual person. I, I got a visual to help us kind of see what this looks like and how this builds. Uh, we're all born. This is our lives. We're all born. That's the dot on the left. Eventually, that line is, is we are either going to die or Jesus is going to return. You actually saw this in this passage of well, the idea of Jesus returning. And when that happens, we're all going to live on forever somewhere. All of us. And then what's going to happen, though, after we die, according to these passages that we've just referred to, is that we are going to face the penalty for our sin if we have not received God's salvation. This is what is coming for us, is an eternal judgment for our sin if we have not received the grace of God for salvation. But what's amazing, though, and this is where you begin to get the amazingness of God's grace, is that God actually does not want this for you. Like if this is in your future, this is not what he wants for you. And so what God did is he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to receive the penalty of your sin in your place. And this brings us to our first definition of grace. I talked about what grace does, but also what grace is. Here's one of the first definitions of grace I want to give you this morning. Grace is God's unfairness in your favor. I think we have that on the screen. And this is a great, by the way, a day to take notes. I'll have a bunch of these kind of slides up here for you. Grace is God's unfairness in your own favor. It's unfair because Jesus on the cross got what you deserved. You should receive the judgment for your sin, but on the cross, Jesus received your judgment in your place. 
And then you receive what you didn't deserve, and that is forgiveness and reconciliation with God if you'll place your faith in Jesus. God is unfair. He should punish you, but he punished Jesus instead. But it's in your favor because then if you place your faith in Jesus, you receive the grace of God that you don't deserve, and Jesus receives the punishment that you do deserve. This is why grace is amazing. But maybe if you're in here, you're like, okay, Concepts don't help me. Visuals don't help me. I'm more of a story person. Let me tell you a couple that I think really grasp this idea. Because what's also amazing about grace is there's nothing you can do to earn it. Ephesians 2 talks about how we're not only dead in our sins, but it also says we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Jesus did it all. Um, John Newton is the author of Amazing Grace, uh, the song I referenced earlier. If you don't know John Newton's story, he was a vile, profane man. Um, just really, really rugged guy, did not have his stuff together. In fact, he was a slave trader. Most, many people don't realize that John Newton was a slave trader. We actually have a picture of here of what the conditions on that boat would have looked like. So he would have been one of the men on this ship taking slaves to a destination to be sold. And then what's crazy is the captain of the slave ship that John Newton was an employee on said that John was the most vile, profane man he'd ever met in his life. If a captain of a slave ship is calling you that, you must have been a bad guy. But what happens in John's story is that when he's on one of these boats, a huge storm comes up and it looks like everyone is going to go down in the ship and die. And in that moment, he realizes that if he dies, what is going to be facing him on the other side? And that is the penalty for his life. And so he just cries out to God for mercy, saying, God, save us. And they don't die. And over the next couple of weeks, as he's just reflecting on this and reflecting on his life, he comes to a moment where he places his faith in Jesus for salvation. And he is saved. And here's what's amazing. This is why grace is so amazing when it comes to how grace saves us. Let's say that John died in that exact moment and he never had a chance to change his life, never had a chance to mend his, his ways. What we believe is that he still would have been saved. Why? Let's, take our, let's go back to our diagram of, of, of the penalty of our sin, actually. Because when you place your faith in God for salvation, the penalty of your sin goes from your future to your past. The second you believe in Jesus, the penalty of your sin is no longer coming for your future. It was paid for in the past by Jesus Christ. And so the penalty of your sin is done forever. So the second John Newton believed in Jesus, he no longer had to bear the penalty for his sin. So if he died in that moment before he ever had a chance to change, he'd have been with Jesus forever. Let me maybe tell you a more contemporary story of a couple I knew. Uh, Rachel and Bo Burnham are their names. Um, I think we have a picture up from their wedding. Uh, got married very, very young. Uh, Bo grew up in the church, but never really loved Jesus, never really cared about the things of God, just went because his family had to go. They get married very young and just a very, very rough, um, dysfunctional marriage, partly just because of Bo and his decisions and the way he was living. And... Um, you know, maybe went through the motions occasionally like of, of Christianity to please his wife, but really just did not care a lot about, about God. Um, was secretly having affairs, committing adultery, just a wreck of a guy. It's taken a toll on their marriage, even though Rachel was not uh, aware of the affairs, which just all this stuff was taking a toll on their marriage. She was growing increasingly bitter about it. And um, one night, Bo just for some reason decides to pray. Um, uh, Rachel had had this book, I think it was The Power of a Praying uh, Marriage or something like that. He just reads a part of it, begins praying, and has this experience with Jesus, and all of a sudden he realizes, like, I'm a wreck, and I need to be saved. And that night he places his faith in Jesus and is saved. 
But here's the thing about Bo. If in that moment he had died and never had a chance to repent for all the stuff that he'd done and change his ways, you know what would have happened to him? He would have been saved. Like, okay, Paul, this seems a little bit far-fetched. It's not because, like, think about the thief on the cross with Jesus. Jesus is dying on the cross, and a thief beside him says, basically, he can express his faith in Jesus. And what does Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Grace is amazing because it can save the very worst of people, no matter what your past is, no matter what your present is, no matter what your story is coming in here this morning. God's grace can save you. And not because of anything that you've done, but because of everything that Jesus did on the cross for you. That's why grace is amazing. And listen, if you're in here and you're, let's go back up to that side up there of our drawing to kind of just get a visual for our people. If you're here and you are to the left of this, just know the penalty of your sins is actually still in your future and it's not what God wants for you. He wants you to receive his saving grace this morning. But if you're in, in your here, if you're in here and you already have, I think this should generate gratitude and a new, profound understanding of just how amazing grace is in your life to save you. So grace saves, but it's not the only thing grace does. In this passage, we also see the second thing, is that is grace transforms us. Grace transforms. I think we'll have this up here on the screen. So in verse 12, it talks about, after it talked about how grace has come, bringing salvation for all people who receive it. It then goes on and it says how it trains us to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It redeems us from all lawlessness, and it purifies a people zealous for good work. So grace does save us from our sins, but then it doesn't just save us from the penalty of our sins. It now transforms us slowly but surely and saves us from the power of our sin. Let's go back to our drawing. So basically, the second we are saved, we now begin a lifelong work of transformation where the power of our sin is slowly but surely broken and we become more of the people God wants us to become. Um, John Newton did not die when he placed his faith in Jesus. Instead, over the coming years, God began a work by his grace of transformation in John to where John went from being a slave trader to being an abolitionist. And he and others would stand before parliament seeking to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom once and forever, and John actually got to see it happen. God's grace saved John Newton, and it transformed John Newton. Rachel and Bo, let's put the first picture back on the screen, because I want to build to what's going to happen. Um, Bo got saved, and God did a radical, mighty work in his life. He begins voraciously reading scripture. He joins different men's groups for support. He's serving in the church, and as this transforming work is happening and he's reading scripture, he comes to this place where it talks about needing to confess your sins to, another, to one another. And he realizes, hey, I've confessed my sins to Jesus, but I need to confess to Rachel what I've done. Well, what he doesn't realize is Rachel has been looking for any excuse to divorce him even when she didn't know about the affair, but she didn't feel like she could because she had no biblical grounds for it. She had just grown bitter towards him, did not love him, wanted to get divorced for him, from him. Well, Bo comes and he just says, listen, I've really been saved. She didn't believe it. But he's like, no, it really has happened, but I've got to confess some sins I did. Confesses the adultery. And in that moment, Rachel thought, I finally have the excuse I need. So even though the kids didn't want the divorce and Bo was seeking reconciliation, Rachel divorced him. And listen, I don't want to like act like she is the bad guy. That's, I hope you're not getting this right now whatsoever. Okay, So please don't hear me say that. But they divorce. Rachel just grows increasingly bitter towards him, doesn't want to talk to him at all. But God continues to do a work in Bo. Bo actually eventually becomes a missionary um, to Dubai. 
And God also begins to do and work in Rachel slowly but surely over time. One night, um, Rachel sees Bo talking with her kids on FaceTime. And for the first time in years, when she just sees him on the screen, her heart melts. And she begins to have feelings for him again. And they begin talking again. And God worked a powerful miracle of reconciliation. And a few, year, and a few years after they divorced, they got remarried. God transformed Bo. And he transformed Rachel and helped get rid of some of the bitterness that had grown up. By the way, rightfully in many ways so because of Bo's actions. God has power not just to save us but to transform us. And now Bo is a lead pastor and Rachel is on staff with him. That's what God's grace can do. It can not only save any of us, it can also change any of us, any of you, regardless of what your past is or your present is. God can change you. I like to think of it like Fixer Upper. My family recently got back into Fixer Upper again. Any Fixer Upper fans out there? Two of you, really great illustration, Paul. This is going well again. Uh, if you don't even know what Fixer Upper is, there's this couple called Chip and Joanna Gaines. Some people think that they're like the next members of the Trinity, at least when it comes to house decorations and stuff. Uh, but seriously, like they, they basically what they do is, is they take couples around Waco, Texas. I've lived in Waco. Every house is a Fixer Upper there, so they're going to be in business for a long time. Anyways, they take these couples to these houses, and they show them these run-down, dilapidated houses. I think we actually have an example on the screen of what one of these houses looks like looks like. Um, and they basically show these houses and say, hey, here's this house that you can buy. But hey, we have a dream for what this house could become. And so if you'll buy this house, we will get to work and fix it up and make this into your dream house. And so couples will buy these houses, but then they'll ship and join and we'll get to work and they'll make it a house like that. Same house. Let's go to the, some of you are like, I want to see the inside. Let's go to the inside for a second. All right, you can go from having a living room like this to Chip and Joanna would then change it to that. Some of your fans are like, show me the kitchen, Paul. Show me the kitchen. All right, we'll go to the kitchen. Oh, look at that thing. Just run down, needs a lot of work. Well, guess what? Chip and Joanna would do a lot of work, but they had a dream in their minds of what it could become, and then it could become something like this. We'll stop there for now. I think they get the picture, uh, literally. So yeah, so just remember, like, when they would go in, they would buy the house, but they would buy it with a dream in mind of what it could become. And then it happened. And here's what I want you to know. When you were saved, if you've been saved, God had a dream and has a dream in his mind for all that you could transform into and become. And in Romans 8, 29, we see it's this. It says, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. God's dream for you is to become increasingly, slowly, but surely through the rest of your life until you die or Jesus returns to become more like Jesus. And it can happen. No matter what thing in your life you're thinking right now has a hold of you, no matter what sin, what habit in your life that you think you can't break free of, God can change you. I've seen it and I want to see it in your life increasingly. So, well, how does that happen? Okay, you're like, okay, right. I get that, but like, what does that actually look like? Like, how does the transformation work? And that's really what I want to spend the rest of our time, probably about the next 15 minutes, 20 minutes or so max, just talking about what does this actually look like on the ground? Because like right now, if I said amen, you may leave really inspired. If like, yes, God can change me. Monday's going to come tomorrow. And you're like, how does that happen? What does that actually look like? I want to now walk us through what that looks like. It happens through the key word in this text besides grace. Let's go back to Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Next word, training us. Transformation happens through training. 
and through being trained. This is the key. So what I want to now do is give you like some principles for transformation of how this actually works. And really, I say principles for training, like how God's grace actually trains you on a daily and ongoing basis. Because if you don't take these, you may be inspired today, but I don't know that much is going to change in your life over time. And so before we get there, though, I really do feel like I was like, ah, before we get to these principles, I do feel like I need to give you a, some real quick, I'm at the breeze through these. In the first service, I didn't, and I got a little long-winded. You got to hold me accountable. You're like, Jeff, you got to be my person that says, dude, you got to go. You got to go. So I'm going to breeze through these. But that being said, these are important. Um, a few years ago, yeah? Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for that trigger, Jeff. Uh, no, I'm just messing. I'm just, uh, anyways, uh, a few years ago when I was learning to swing a golf club or when I was working out, you know what I uh, noticed? Anytime before we would go to train, the trainer would remind me, hey, remember a couple of things as we're about to get going. Hey, remember, lift with your legs, not with your back, all that kind of stuff. So in other words, it's like there are some things you need to know as you're training or you might get off base. And there's a few things you need to know. Number one, number one, and we're going to go through these pretty fast. They're going to be on the screen. I could do whole sermons in each of these, but we don't have time for that. All right, number one, that, that baby just amen me. Um, <laughs> number one, your salvation is secure. Your salvation is secure. So when we're talking about these different training things here in a bit, you need to know you are not doing these things to get saved. You're doing these things because you are already saved. You're not doing these things to get God to love you. You're doing these things because you are already loved by God completely. The penalty of your sin is in the past. It's not in the future. So you're not doing any of this to earn your salvation. You're working with God for your transformation. So your salvation is set and secure. Even on the worst day that you're going to have in your transformation journey, you are just as saved as your best day. Number two, I wish I could go on there more. I was tempted to. Jeff didn't even have to tell me to keep going. We're going on. Number two, transformation is a lifelong progressive pursuit. You got to know this. Here's why. You're going to have bad days and you're going to blow it. Okay. There's a reason why on the drawing, and we don't have to put it up there, but there's a reason why I only crossed out part of the word power. And that's because this is ongoing and progressive and you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad. It's not going to happen all at once. That's not how transformation works. But here, here's how I like to think of it. In 10 years, I hope I'm a godlier man than I am right now. But I know that every day from now into those 10 years is not going to be a win. I'm going to fall down, but here's what's beautiful, is by God's grace, I then get back up and I keep going. This is so important, by the way, in a church context. In a church context, we should be surprised by anyone who cares less about transformation if they're a Christian. Like the Bible has no concept or category of that. It has no category for someone who has been saved by God's grace, but doesn't log to be transformed by his grace. So we should be surprised by that. But at the same time, because we're all works in progress, we shouldn't be surprised when people fail, including ourselves. So because of that, we should be people who extend grace to others and to ourselves when we do fail in that progress. All right, next two, we'll go through fast. Number three, reminder, your goal, devotion to Jesus and becoming like Jesus. Here's why this is important. A lot of people put the emphasis on becoming like Jesus. It is, it is very possible that you could become a very good, moral, squeaky clean person, but not really love Jesus. I've known a lot of people like that. The goal is to have a vibrant, heartfelt relationship with Jesus where you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you are also increasingly becoming like him. 
You got to have both. All right, final reminder, and this I will say is a key one, and it sets up well then for these principles for training. You need to remember this last thing. You are not trying, you're training. Big difference. I could tell you right now, hey, go try to climb Mount Baker. And by the way, today you could go and try it. Probably not going to go well for you. <laughs> you could go right now and try to play golf. But if you've never trained and actually like been equipped to know how, it's probably going to go bad for you. Here's the difference between trying and training. It really comes down to this, a committed plan. When I'm training to do something, the person who is training me is then going to lay out a plan for here's the things that you need to do so that you can be able to do the things you want to do. Here's the things you need to do to be able to do the things you want to do. You've got to have a plan. So here's, we push PDPs a lot here at the church. Here's why. You need to have a plan to become more like Jesus. If you don't know what a PDP is, we've created this tool called a personal discipleship plan. If you don't have one filled out, I encourage you as a practical next step this week, fill it out. It's going to help you get a plan for spending time with Jesus. It's also maybe going to give you a plan for, hey, as we'll talk about in a minute, what are those areas that you feel like Jesus most wants to transform in you right now? If you don't like the PDP and you want something else, awesome. Just have something. Because we are training, we're not trying. All right? All right. That being said, thanks, Jeff. You didn't really have to do it much, but, you know, here we go. Let me give you four principles. The first one is, I'd say, probably the most important, but I still want to give you four. As you are training for transformation, training for transformation includes, number one, embraces dependent responsibility. If you are going to become all that God dreamed you to be, you've got to embrace dependent responsibility. This is the secret sauce of grace-fueled transformation and grace-fueled training. You've got to get this. Like if you get nothing else, you've got to get this. This is where I think when I see people who are stuck in their transformation journey, like in general or maybe in a particular area, it's generally because this is missing. You're like, well, what's dependent responsibility? It's this. It is where you were ultimately dependent upon something else for the end result, but you're still responsible for part of the result. Easiest example I can think of is farmers, right? Farmers cannot make a seed grow. If they yell at it, if they look at it, whatever they do, they can't make the seed grow. They are dependent on something else beside themselves for that seed to sprout. But does that then mean that the farmer sits back in their house and just kind of waits and does like, all right, let's just hope this thing happens. I'm just going to pray. No. You know what they do? They plant the seed. They till the soil. If there's a drought, they get water to it. They're working hard even as they're ultimately dependent upon something else to make it happen. Okay? It's the same thing in our relationship with God, with our transformation. Um, I've got a drawing up here that helps me kind of get my head around it because I'm a visual guy. There's God's part and there's my part. My part is still ultimately dependent upon God, but I'm responsible for my part. I think we got another picture up here that even just shows this idea of dependent responsibility. I depend on God to do his part. I'm responsible for my part. In case you're thinking I'm just making this up, um, let me show you actually this from Titus. And I should have done this a few minutes ago, but a lot of this terminology... I did just meet myself. Comes from a guy named Jerry Bridges. Wrote um, The Pursuit of Holiness, Practice of Godliness. Incredibly wise man of God. Encourage you to read his books. Wanted to give credit on this phrase, dependent responsibility. But let's go back to Titus 2. We'll have it on the screen and actually show you how this works on the screen. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and training. That is God's work. Same passage. To renounce. I'm the one who has to renounce the negative things in my life. To live. 
I have to do the things then that the scripture calls me to do, to be zealous for good works. That's my responsibility. God works in my life, but ultimately, if I'm not doing those things, I can't look at God and say, well, you need to do better at your part, buddy. I wouldn't do that. That'd be really awkward um, <laughs> and go really bad for you. No, like there's God's part and there's my part. Um, let's actually let's skip the next one and go to the third one. Let's go to the third one. I want to show you this in another few places, um, and I think you'll get the point. Let's show you some other passages because this is not just in this passage. It's all throughout the Bible. By the grace of God, I am what I am. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He was a persecutor and killer of Christians, jacked up, messed up guy. He was saved by God's grace, and then he said, the person I am now is by God's grace. But then look what he says. His grace was not in vain. What did he do? I worked harder than anyone. Let's go to our next one. This, I think, will be our last one. I think you'll begin to get the point. That same Paul, he then becomes zealous for good works, and he's going around spreading the gospel. In Colossians, he says, I toil, struggling. The word in Greek in the original language was agonizomai, agony. I agonize, I toil, struggling, but with what? With all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Jesus is supplying the energy, but guess what it still feels like? Toil and struggle. Okay, let's just bring it together. Like, okay, like, what is the point of all this? This, if I could put up a slide on the screen, we'll have it. This is the key point you got to take away. Receiving grace for transformation and training does not equal being passive. So in other words, like the idea of receiving grace or transformation, it doesn't mean I just sit here and just like, all right, God, we'll make it happen. It's like going back to the fixer-upper thing, what happens at the end of the show is Chip and Joanna have done all this work and the couple then comes and gets to see this end result that I showed you the pictures of. And they're always like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And they start crying. That's what we want. We wish it could be like, all right, Jesus, just do the work. Magically make me a more patient, a more content, a better person. And uh, just let me know when you're finished. That's not how transformation happens with God. Transformation with God is a two-player game. He says, here's the dream that I have for you. Now grab a hammer and get to work with me. That's like, if we are going to see transformation happen, we can't be passive. We have to be active and actively like executing a plan that we have in place. Fallen, this is so crucial. Now you're like, okay, like, okay, but that's great, but this is still arthurial, how this happens. I thought it might be good to give you maybe like a case study or two. Um, I like to think of it like this. Where my circle and God's circle most overlaps and my dependence and my, I mean, God's, my dependence on God and my responsibility for my part meets is in the word and in prayer. It's when I'm reading the word and he's showing me things in the word. I'm dependent on him to show me these things, but like he's showing me some things in the word that I need to apply. But then my job is to apply them. That's my job. But then as I'm seeing that, I'm praying because prayer is an expression of my dependence on God. I'm praying, God, give me the strength to do this. Let me break this down for you. Let's say um, you are envious of someone. You're reading 1 Corinthians 13 in your Bible reading, and it says, love does not envy. And you think, oh, I'm envious of Tom at work. Or, hey, I'm envious of that family at the ball fields that they just, they have the nice car and they have the nice family. It feels like everything is good. Like, I don't have that. I'm envious of them. And God begins to work of saying, hey, I want to do transforming work about this envy in your life. Well, you're going to have to have a plan. That's just not magically going to happen out of nowhere. And so maybe what you could do is you could think about 1 Corinthians 13. Every time you see them, if you see envy begin to build up, say, no, 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 I don't want to envy them. And so your plan is this. Every time you begin to feel envy about Tom or about that family, you pray that God would bless them. You say, no, like, my plan is every time I get into feel that feeling, I'm going to stop and I'm going to say, God, bless them even more than you already have. Thank you for how you've blessed them. Give them any more and Lord, transform my heart. And you keep doing that and doing that and doing that until you go from actually just wanting it to happen to it begins to happen and you no longer envy them. Listen, 
that sounds simple. Don't confuse simple with easy. <laughs> this is the nitty gritty work of transformation and how it actually occurs. This is how it's happened in my life right now. I noticed recently I've been extremely impatient. Notice it in the car when I was taken on a vacation. I took a vacation by myself a week or two ago to Banff and uh, to Jasper, beautiful places. But like in the car, I'd get stuck behind that one RV. The person had rented the RV and they didn't know like etiquette of RV, which is if there's 15 people lined up behind you, you pull to the side free commercial to anyone if you rent an RV in the future. Anyways, and I would just be getting frustrated. I had no schedule. I was by myself. I could do whatever I wanted, but I was getting so frustrated. And we, we all do this in the car, by the way. Like if you've ever noticed when you're driving, anyone who's faster than you is a maniac. Anyone who's slower than you is a grandma. Anyone who's the same speed of you, you think is annoying. You do it too, all right? So I'm impatient in the car, and I noticed I was impatient with my family, kind of a thing, especially with my kids. I get so frustrated when they would fight, and I could literally feel myself getting worked up, and I said, okay, Paul, when this happens, you're gonna breathe, and I'm literally, I just said, here's what you're gonna remind yourself of, and this is what I say to myself, sometimes even out loud. Paul, you are not God. Chill. <laughs> and then often I'll say, God, right now, forgive me for how I was impatient. Help me remember I'm not you. Give me the grace to be more patient. And there's days where I'm better and there's days where I'm worse, but I will say over and over again, I see it slowly transforming. Again, this is not like right now inspiring, but I'm saying this is the secret sauce of your transformation. All right, that being said, we need to now roll through the final three things because that's not the only thing you need. Transformation does embrace dependent, uh, dependent responsibility, but number two, it also involves both putting on and taking off parts of us. There's positive things that God wants to bring to life in you, but there's negative things that he wants to take out of you. So it's not just that he wants me to be impatient. He wants me to be patient. It's not just that he wants me to be un, not be unkind. He wants me to be kind. There's certain things that I need to put on and there's certain things that I need to take off. And it's a both and. It's like a pair of scissors. It's only effective if you have both blades. Okay. So here's why this is, matters. Is I'd say in your life, what you can even right now begin thinking about is, what are the things in my life that God probably most wants to work on in terms of removing them? But also what's maybe missing that he wants to bring into life? Like, for example, if you've been here, you're like, man, I, I never spend time in the word. I never spend time in prayer. You're not gonna get very far in your transformation journey. So maybe that's the thing God wants to birth in you. But what are those things? All right, number three, training for transformation is best done with others. Transformation is not a solo sport. It's best done when it's with other people. People who can maybe see some of your blind spots that you don't see. Um, people who can encourage you. Maybe when you failed that you just need a word of grace and encouragement when you failed and blown it. And they can be the person that helps you back up. Um, and just sometimes there's people who are just a little bit further down the road in their transformation than you. Not because they're inherently better. They've just been walking with Jesus a little bit longer, had a little bit more victory. And like, let's say like I'm struggling with something and I see someone who has more victory in that. I can just say, hey, can you help me like, what has helped you like in this process? You've got to have others. So with this in mind, if you're here and you don't have a people at Redeemer, if you don't have a GC, or if you don't have someone who's investing in your life, over the next few weeks, we're going to give you practical ways that you can jump into that. I know it's the summer, but in the September, jump in and get people in your life. Because I don't believe you will, ever become, you will ever become the person God dreamed you of being without other people. All right, last thing. Training for transformation maintains reasonable expectations. Here's what I mean by this one. Um, I wrote down a list of uh, just some of the positive things the New Testament wants to see come to life in you. Here's what I wrote down. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, humility, contentment, thankfulness, holiness, godliness, compassion, living on mission, serving others. You want me to keep going? (laughs) Here's the thing. Like, you can't work on all that at one time. Instead, I think usually how God works is there's usually like one, two, or three things that he wants to work on us in our transformation. And then when we do those, he'll then bring to mind the next thing, the next thing. So like, don't think that you're going to go out here and learn how to do everything at once. Instead, just again, right now, in fact, this is probably the biggest next step for most of you. Just be praying, God, what is that one or two or three things where you most want to bring your transforming grace to bear in my life? Focus on that. Get a plan. Grab a hammer and start getting to work. So here's my last question. We talked about how grace is amazing because it saves and because it transforms. Which of those graces do you most need today? And really that question comes back down to our drawing. Let's put that uh, drawing back up of the uh, salvation line. It really comes down to what side of the line are you on? And if you're on the left side of the salvation line, if you do not know the saving grace of Jesus, do not focus first on trying to to transform. It's like putting wings on a caterpillar and hoping it'll fly. Not going to happen very well. Instead, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, know that he died to take the penalty of your sin and make it a part of your past. Your first step today is to embrace the saving grace of Jesus. But if you're here, I think most of you are, and you've embraced that, here's what I'm hoping for you is that you would say, God wants to do this incredible work in you of transformation. Where in your life, what is that one, two, or three areas that God wants to work that grace of transformation in your life? If you don't have an answer right now, maybe over the next week, pray about it, think about it, and then you begin to form a plan and say, God, I am dependent upon you to change me. By your grace, make it happen, but show me what you want me to do as I partner with you in it. And let me give you this encouragement. Um, in Philippians 1, Paul talks about these Christians that he knew from Philippi, and he said this, I am convinced, not that I think, not that I hope, I am convinced, Paul knew this, that he, referring to Jesus, who began a good work in you, will carry it forth to completion. We didn't show this drawing up there earlier. Isaac, can you go to the picture number five? Um, as you are being transformed by the grace of God, the, the salvation sequence when it talks about the presence of sin, if not, I can just describe it to you. There you're on a journey of being transformed. Eventually, when you, either you die or Jesus returns, you are not only going to be saved from the power of sin, you are going to be saved from the presence of sin. And God will carry you forth to that day to completion. Next slide, I think, is what is up there. Don't worry about it at this point. I think they got it, and I'm out of time. So just know this. God's grace can save you, it can transform you, and it will sustain you to the end. When you are made fully like Jesus, when he returns, or when you see him face to face. Let's pray. God, I have so much to go through here, God. And um, this was just such a beautiful passage that does just have so much of the gospel packed into it. But my fear even now, going through all that, is that able to get lost in all the different details. God, I really just pray that simple thing that we today would not only know in our minds how amazing your grace is, but we would experience it. Lord, that if there are people in here that do not know you, may they experience your saving grace today. Would you show them their sin and the penalty of their sin that's coming for them? And Lord, out of desperation, would they call out to you to have mercy on them? God, I pray for the people in this room that are in the midst of their transformation journeys, maybe people who've given up thinking that change isn't possible for them, that they're just kind of stuck where they are, things are just where they are. Would you show them that their, your grace is powerful enough to conquer the biggest sin in their life and the smallest and everything in between, that you have a dream of all you want to make them and you are committed to them, Lord. Fuel them, Lord, with your grace 
as they also work alongside you. And God, we just thank you for the fact in all this. We're just reminding ourselves now as we go to communion that even as we're working with you for our transformation, none of it saves us. Only your cross, your perfect life, your resurrection. We thank you for the gospel. It's in your name, your name we pray. Amen.